1: really, really big airports that have, um, you know, Terminal A, Terminal B, Terminal E, to all these these different terminals we have to go to. And You know, normally you walk along at about three miles an hour, the airport, and you're going from one, one gate to another gate. Uh, but in some locations, you have these horizontal travelators, conveyor belts, if you will, and you're, you're walking along at uh, three miles an hour, and then you, you step on top of this belt, Right, you're still walk. Most of us still walk while we're on the belt. So you're walking at three miles an hour on the belt, but the belt is actually moving as well. And in conceptually speaking, the belt is contracting space in front of you, and the belt is going and looping back around on the back, and so it's expanding space behind. You. So the travelator contracts space in front of you and expands space behind you, so that it augments your apparent speed. And so you actually look like you're going faster, even though locally, you're still going at three miles an hour. So somebody sitting on a bench, uh, looking at you while you're walking long, before you get on the belt, they see you walking along at three miles an hour, you get on the belt, it looks like you're going six miles an hour, and then you get back off the belt and it looks like you're going three miles an hour. So that's kind of a just a pedestrian example of the idea of, of a space warp, where you can appear to be going much faster, while locally, you're, you really haven't changed it.
2: The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of Stories from Space. I'm Matt Williams, and with me in the booth today is Harold Sonny White the former Advanced Propulsion Team Lead at the Advanced Propulsion Physics Laboratory, or Eagle Works, at NASA's Johnson Space Center. He is a distinguished engineer and applied physicist. However, what he is perhaps best known for is his proposal for a new Alcubierre drive system that could lead to a breakthrough in propulsion, specifically in a faster-than-light drive system that could make interstellar travel a possibility. Yes, Dr. White, thank you for joining us.
1: Hey, how's it going, Matt? Good to see you today, okay.
2: bud. In any case, uh, as you can imagine, I've got a lot of questions for you um, yeah. in particular. So uh, since retiring from NASA, you have now uh, joined a new organization that's dedicated to achieving the dream of FTL, known as the Limitless Space Institute. So, when exactly did this institute launch, and uh, how did you come by it?
1: Yeah, great question, Matt. Yeah, so in 2019, towards the end of uh, 2019, uh, a guy by the name of Brian B.K. Kelly reached out to me. He was a, a retired NASA guy, He was the uh, former head of the Flight Operations Directorate at at, uh, at NASA, so a very well-regarded uh, human being, really neat guy, uh, and so he wanted to talk to me about some uh, some education outreach topics. And so in the process of talking with him, uh, you know, it became very obvious that, uh, you know, he wanted me to potentially uh, leave NASA and come help him uh, kind of stand up and define uh, Limitless Space Institute. And so after a lot of thought and prayer, I, it just felt like I could be a little bit more effective at trying to make progress in this domain of advanced power and propulsion. And so made the decision to to pull the D-ring at the end of 2019 and join Limitless Space Institute uh, as the Director of Advanced Research and Development. Uh, Let me tell you just a little bit about Limitless Space Institute. Um, We are a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, Our mission is to inspire and educate the next generation to travel beyond our solar system and to support the research and development of enabling technologies. And that is enabling interstellar flight that is extremely difficult when people think of um, space travel today, they they might think of, hey, we're looking at trying to send human beings back to the surface of the moon, or uh, we've got these neat rovers that are on the surface of Mars that are going around doing interesting things. and And those are amazing examples of of space exploration. But those are all possible uh, using chemical propulsion. if If we want to send human beings to the outer solar system, if we want to get a crew, from the Earth to Saturn, and we want to get them there in, in 200 days, the amount of energy that's necessary to make something like that possible is an entire order of magnitude larger than it takes to get a payload from the surface of the Earth to low Earth orbit, right? So all that to say, chemical propulsion can't close that. The physics of chemical propulsion will not close that. So I mean, what are we to do? Does that mean there's no hope? You know, we, is this something we, we can't even we can't even think about? well, there are things that we can do. It just requires us to think beyond just the, the basics of chemical propulsion. And I'm going to kind of cover three broad categories, spanning what we know and then moving into what we don't know. Firmly firmly within the category of uh, known physics and known engineering, uh, we could have a situation where we use nuclear electric propulsion, right? you got a nuclear reactor that's fissioning uranium, gener- generating electricity, and providing that power to a form of electric propulsion that's ionizing a gas and accelerating it, that type of power and propulsion architecture could take human beings to every destination in our solar system. It's well explored in the literature, well understood. And we have forms of electric propulsion flying all over Earth uh, orbit today and in a couple of interplanetary missions in the solar system. Uh, we The U.S. has flown one reactor in like the 60s called snap a a fission-based uh, reactor. The Russians have flown uh, quite a few more. Uh, reactors. nothing in the nothing in the megawatt range, which is what you would arguably need for human nuclear electric propulsion. But at NEP nuclear electric propulsion would still take you know a couple thousand years to get to Proxima Centauri. So that's uh, you know it might be interesting to think about for some folks. Uh, and there's I think people talk about a concept called world ships. Uh, they might look at that where it's some kind of multi generational thing. But it's still it's a long time to be sure. Uh, if we wanted to get to an interstellar destination a little bit more quickly, uh, we need to move a little bit into the unknown. Um, and if we switch from a, a fission-based type of power system and we switch to fusion, where instead of fissioning uranium, we're using, say, deuterium and tritium or some combination of, uh, of gases that we could fuse at very high temperature when they're in the form of a plasma. Uh, fusion propulsion is a little bit more capable than nuclear electric propulsion. Now, I think the one caveat is we, we don't have fusion reactors all over the planet. So the engineering of a fusion reactor is still, we still have to work that out. Uh, but that may actually be a little closer than, than most people think. But, but fusion propulsion would enable us to send large payloads to Proxima Centauri in, in 100 years, maybe a little bit less if you want to get aggressive with the Delta V. Uh, but if we want to do a, 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 an interstellar mission to Proxima Centauri, we want to get there in, in, let's say, 20 years or less. That's where we kind of have to look to the frontiers of physics, move firmly into the unknown, kind of exploring the frontiers. You know, if you think about physics as we know it today, you got quantum mechanics that, you know, defines how the microscopic world behaves and general relativity describes how the, the macroscopic world behaves, but these two physics theories are not compatible, right? So we, we know there's a more generalized understanding that we have yet to figure out. And so in the process of working in the frontiers of, the, of what we know of physics today, Maybe we'll find new ways to do things that will enable you know power and propulsion systems that we currently can't figure out what to build today. Like the you Alcubia know, work measure, right? What 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 do we build to make something like that physically manifest? Uh, right now, it's predominantly in the realm of mathematical physics, and then some people are just starting to explore things that trace to the concept of the Casimir uh, phenomena and so forth. So, those are kind of the three different swim lanes, if you will, that uh, we we think about at LSI as we try and put. Uh, Rubber to the road uh, as we try to make progress towards our, our mission statement. So, there you go. That's, uh, that's the reason for the switch and kind of what we're about at LSI.
2: Okay. Well, a uh, couple follow uh, follow up things there that actually uh, definitely wanted to say generation ships, that's, um, or world ships, as you said. That is um, that is a concept there that is uh, it, it, it tends to come up all the time there. Anytime anyone's talking about interstellar travel, that is uh, that is sort of the fallback option, isn't it? It's like we we accept that we can't go fast. We own that. So we're just going to build a huge ship that'll mm-hmm. accommodate multiple generations and, you know, mm-hmm. hope and pray they don't all kill each other.
1: but uh yeah (laughs) i've heard a lot of people remark right so what happens when a future generation decides hey we didn't decide to go on this journey right
2: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah so you know you may have an, an initial generation through some catalyst or crucible decides that this type of a mission is of critical importance and then they you know they they do what's necessary to amass all of that structure and technology and power and then they depart on this mission and once they're gone, maybe the catalyst for that doesn't, it doesn't resonate with future generations, 10, 10 generations down the line. What happens then? So,
2: yeah. And yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine they teach their kids that, uh, Oh, earth is doomed. Earth is gone. You know, you can't go back. That's, that's crazy, but that'll only make them want to do it more. And <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> you know? It's like, we want, we want to see for ourselves, <laughs> you know, we want to test this theory out there. And think, oh. yeah. The other thing I want to mention, um, so the key here is we're talking about crude missions right um because there's currently also a lot of work going on now to do direct energy um right. propulsion but of course those concepts are they're uncrewed they're all about just getting a robotic explorer that's a huge accomplishment i shouldn't, I shouldn't say just
1: no it's <laughs> yeah. you're, you're right it's still and that's uh our sister organization breakthrough initiatives mm-hmm. uh, is keenly interested in uh, you know a, a, a beamed energy type sail mission to get to an appreciable fraction of the s- speed of light and get to proxima centauri of alpha centauri in 20ish years right now i mean they got to have a pretty big uh, array of uh, lasers on the ground but i mean th- there's no there's no physics obstacles uh, for for that type of approach, it's just a lot of hard engineering, right? So yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's also something we're we're keenly uh, interested in watching that and breakthrough and LSI both uh, collaborate together on a number of things. So
2: oh good, okay. that's excellent. Yeah,
1: we um, mm-hmm. uh, we awarded uh, uh, Phil Lubin's group uh, an Interstellar Initiative grant uh, as part of our inaugural uh, grant cycle, twenty twenty. Uh, so we uh, we paid for some work uh, for him to mature his uh, laser design to have multiple uh, lasers working in cooperation in the field uh, uh, with a cooperative target. So,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. In fact, uh, well, I'd, I'd like to talk more about those uh, about your research grants and your other efforts there, like your education outreach programs there, okay. in just a bit. But I feel I would be really irresponsible if I didn't. Really try to get you to talk about uh, the Alcubierre warp drive. To to give you a bit of a uh, like a, a personal uh, uh, take there. Um, well, I remember, I remember in two thousand twelve. Remember the story breaking um, about how you during the one hundred year starship uh, conference there you were preparing to make remarks and you were just sort of going over the equations and a breakthrough happened where it was like the Alcubierre metric, which. Describes a warp field. Yes, the original paper by Miguel Alcubierre. He proposed this, but all all the research at the time said this would require a prohibitive amount of technology. Right, right. Yes, but then you you found a, uh, a loophole. Can can you describe that a little bit for us?
1: Yeah, sure. So I I, had, I was asked to kind of give a talk about space warps at the uh, the the inaugural NASA DARPA Hundred Year Starship Symposium. And uh, so I I didn't just want to kind of rehash what I'd already talked about in the past. So I I went through and did some uh, sensitivity analysis with the field equations. I was looking at uh, what happens when you change some of the input parameters to the the total energy requirement for the phenomena. uh, Just because I want to have something new to talk about. And um, in the process of doing that, uh, it became very clear that um, you could significantly reduce the amount of uh, negative vacuum energy density that's necessary to make the trick work. I uh, the, the stuff I published in like 11, 12, and thirteen at uh, like three different conferences back to back was kind of an the, the unfolding of that story. Um, you know, I was able to go through and, and duplicate the best re- prediction that had been done prior to that by a colleague of mine, Richard Abusi. Uh, Richard Abusi had done some analysis to show where he was able to reduce the amount of exotic matter necessary to make the, the trick work. To something about the size of Jupiter. Uh, And so I I went through and said, all right, well, let's uh, look at a toy spacecraft that's uh, 10 meters in diameter and effective velocity of 10 C. And if we change this, the the parameter I I focused on was something called the shell thickness parameter. If I change the shell thickness parameter, I can go through and and I can show, uh, I can duplicate uh, uh, Richard's work. So I was able to go through and show with this 10 meter diameter spacecraft with an effective velocity of 10 C. If you construct it in such a way that the, the shell is a certain thickness, it will require a Jupiter amount of exotic matter. And so I went through the process of changing the shell thickness parameter and showed that by allowing the the shell of the, the warp bubble that forms in the phenomena, allowing it to get thicker, uh, reduces the magnitude of the York time field. Uh, and that's the think of that as like the strain that you put on space time, right? So when we think about strain in engineering. If you squeeze something, it compresses, you know, so many inches per inch. It's like a unitless parameter we use when we think about materials. Uh, The York time is like a three-dimensional strain. So it's like cubic meters per cubic meter, if you will. And so by making the shell thickness parameter uh, such that you could uh, make the the warp bubble uh, thicker, you could reduce the magnitude of the York time. And it's nonlinear. And so by doing that, we were able to reduce the amount of exotic matter from Jupiter down to about one, you know, two metric tons. Of, it's about the size of the board to one spacecraft, right? And so in, in my mind, that at least says, the idea is not only mathematically possible, right? Because it, it, with Jupiter amount of exotic matter, it's just a mathematical model. It's never going to be something that, that we could do, right? I mean, maybe nature could do it in some weird way that we have yet to discover, but you know, we would never be able to do that with, with Jupiter either. I hate to say the word never, but that seems really impractical. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, reducing the amount of exotic matter to, to something that's that we can kind of connect with a couple metric tons—I mean that at least moves it into the to the category of, of plausible, right? I, I don't—that doesn't say anything yet about it being feasible because we still have to. How do you generate negative vacuum energy density, right? I'm not there mm-hmm. on how that might work. But, uh, uh, that's kind of the the consensus of uh, the, the, the excuse me the summary of the work that I did. In that time frame, uh, now you asked me to kind of explain the idea of the alcubierre warp War, uh, and I'll let me do that uh, using kind of a terrestrial analogy that I use a number of times. Um, we've all traveled uh, via airplanes to different locations uh, around the globe for a multitude of reasons, and we've all been in these really, really big airports that have, um, you know, Terminal A, Terminal B, D- Terminal E, to all these these different terminals we have to go to, and, and we have to change jets. Uh, uh, as part of our as part of our journey and as right, and so you're you know normally you walk along at about three miles an hour at the airport and you're going from one one gate to another gate uh, but in some locations you have these horizontal travelators conveyor belts if you will and you're you're walking along at uh, three miles an hour and then you you step on top of this belt right and you're still walking most of us still walk while we're on the belt so you're walking at three miles an hour on the belt but the belt is actually moving as well. And in, in conceptually speaking, the belt is contracting space in front of you and the belt is going underneath and looping back around on the back. And so it's expanding space behind you. So the travelator contracts space in front of you and expands space behind you <clears throat> so that it augments your apparent speed. And so you actually look like you're going faster, even though locally you're still going at three miles an hour. So somebody sitting on a bench, uh, looking at you while you're walking along before you get on the belt, they see you walking along at three miles an hour you get on the belt it looks like you're going six miles an hour and then you get back off the belt and it looks like you're going three miles an hour so that's kind of a just a pedestrian example of the idea of, of a space warp where you can appear to be going much faster well locally you you really haven't changed anything you're still you're still doing what you were doing before you turned on the field
2: yeah and theoretically, this is uh, this is not inconsistent with general relativity. Or so, yeah, it is a way around the uh, the inviolability
1: of yeah relativity in general. There, um, yeah, which that's what I that's what I like to call the eleventh commandment of physics: Thou shalt not exceed the speed of light. Right. The,
2: yeah. Yeah. The
1: same, the same framework that that dictates that speed limit also facilitates these potential pathways that we could. We could we could potentially cover stellar distances in uh, uh, you know non-trivially short periods of time yeah. without breaking that 11 commandment.
2: So yes, now as I understand it, uh, mainly because uh, I looked it up uh, a while ago, um, negative vacuum energy. This refers to theoretical uh, work there of Paul Dirac and and others who said that the vacuum of space is filled with negative energy, and it's like the counterpart to gravitational energy, um, and it's a positive and a negative in sort of the same way as potential and kinetic energy. Would that be
1: a fair so, comparison? So let me, let me kind of communicate it in the following way, right? Um, okay. uh, and, and it's interesting. So, you know, Cubier's paper that he uh, published on the idea of this the little space work concept he came up with, he talked about that within the context of uh, general relativity, the the field equations require exotic matter. Uh, what is exotic matter within the framework of, of general relativity? It's negative mass and it's, or negative energy, and so uh, there's there's no clear path that we understand today and how you could go through and make a make a bottle of that. Right? It's not like we have a pump that has acme exotic matter that you can go fill up a tank or something like that. We that. Within the context of general relativity, we don't know how to do that, right? Um, But remember what I talked about in the beginning of the discussion, If you think about the frontiers of physics, there's like, it's a Venn diagram. There's two circles on this Venn diagram, and they kind of touch at one little tangent point. Uh, uh, General relativity is the macroscopic understanding of things, and quantum mechanics is the microscopic understanding of things. And So within the context of quantum mechanics, there's this phenomenon called negative vacuum energy density, which has all the mathematical characteristics of exotic matter and general relativity. And so, Alcubierre, in his paper that he published, his inaugural paper, he highlighted the fact that although general relativity doesn't tell us exactly how to go through and make exotic matter, we could potentially look to quantum mechanics and try and explore this phenomenon called negative vacuum energy density. And he even goes so far to specifically talk about the, the, the phenomenon known as the Casimir force. And so, the Casimir force is actually a a macroscopically measurable uh, manifestation of this, this quantum vacuum, this negative vacuum energy density in the quantum vacuum. And so let me take you through just a, like a two minute explanation of the Casimir phenomenon. I think that's a great illustration of the concept of negative vacuum energy density. Um, so we're gonna conduct a little thought experiment. If we, if we imagine for a moment that my, my, my hands are two metallic plates, they're very tiny. Right. And you put them very, very close to one another. We're talking like microns separated. Right. So these are two very tiny plates separated by microns or even sub micron distances. We take those two plates and we put them into a vacuum chamber. And we turn on the vacuum pumps and we pull out all of the air out of that vacuum chamber so that there's absolutely no molecules of air in that vacuum chamber. And we're going to imagine for a moment, Matt, that you have superpowers and you can shrink yourself down to being a tiny little atomic person. And we're going to send you into the vacuum chamber and you're going to go through and you're going to go measure the pressure on the outside of the plates and the pressure between the plates, right? Or conversely, the energy density on the outside of the plates, the energy density in between the plates. Now, our classical physics understanding of the world, you know, the macroscopic way things move, you push and things move and and air molecules move and so forth. Um, Our expectation is that you would report back that you would measure zero pressure on the outside of the plates and zero pressure in between the plates. But what you would actually measure is you would measure zero pressure on the outside of the plates, but you would measure a negative pressure in between the two plates. And so that results in a force that wants to pull those two plates together, right? And so what what happens is the, the presence of the two plates in the quantum vacuum restrict which vacuum fluctuations can pop into and out of existence Um, And so when you integrate over all the vacuum, over all all the frequencies, the vacuum fluctuations that can appear on the outside of the plates versus inside of the plates, there is this deficiency between the two. And so there is a negative vacuum energy density uh, that occurs as a result of those two plates or those two potentials, if you will, uh, in the quantum vacuum, restricting, restricting those vacuum fluctuations. modes. Now, the Casimir force was derived in 1948 by Casimir. I believe he was working with fluorescent light bulbs, of all things. But it was uh, it was measured to the physics community's satisfaction in 1996 by, I think, Lamoureux. Uh, There's a paper by Lamoureux. Uh, And there, it's been measured numerous times since then in a lot of different uh, configurations. And they've also explored the fact that the Casimir phenomena, the Casimir force of these two plates, right? If you... Yeah, you know, I was talking about the, the force that wants to pull these two plates together. There's also a force called this transverse Casimir force that restricts, or sorry, wants to, to try and work against moving those two plates relative to one another. So it's like this stickiness issue of the quantum. Uh-huh. So the quantum realm, I think, uh, really highlights the fact that we have we, we've got some more work to do to try and understand nature at this this fundamental level. But this. Uh, uh or the state that exists between these two plates uh, has a lot of appealing characteristics kind of mapped to what the okubier uh stuff requires so maybe there's hope we'll see
2: i wanted to say in effect uh when you released your 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 findings there 2012 at the uh a year later after you were doing them at the 100 year starship conference i yeah that blew my mind somewhat. There, I thought, "Oh my God, really?" Mm-hmm. I'd given up on the idea that FTL was, you know, conceivable. I figured that, uh, uh, yeah, I figured uh, light huggers was the closest we were ever going to get. And I thought, well, yeah, in order to do a lot of science fiction and to explore a lot of tropes you need something that can go faster than light otherwise it's like well how do the aliens ever meet us how do different right. uh you know planets of human populations meet each other and, and mix it would take so long and, the,
1: t- <laughs> yeah. the, the tv episodes would be a you know very long spans of nothing happening
2: right so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah or there's just massive time skips it's like what what happened to captain so-and-so it's like they're dead right. now Uh, 400 years later geez you know keep up yeah this
1: is is (laughs) captain Phil the 14th right so
2: yeah oh god yeah well that would make for some interesting stuff there but i I just don't think it'd be accessible you know most people would just (laughs) change the channel right right right. 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 well thank you so much for for taking the time out um uh from all of us here at stories from space uh, i want to thank dr sunny white for coming in and really given us a, a wonderful rundown on the the ongoing research into FTL and making interstellar travel happen. And uh, I also want to say to the listeners, yeah, if your minds are blown at this point, that's the proper feeling. If they weren't, I'd be worried. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. White. Hey, thank you, Matt. Appreciate it, bud. Thanks for having me.
0: cybersecurity and society.